why the winemaker of one of Napa Valley's most sought-after cult cabernets picked up and moved to Washington State. All that and more coming up in this episode of The Honest Pour. Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. While Todd Alexander was making Bryant Family Vineyards, he learned that making a Napa Valley cult cab was not only about total commitment, but was about being a steward of the house style rather than making wines of his own expression. When the opportunity came to move to Washington State and take over winemaking at Force Majeure, Alexander was intrigued by the opportunity to work with a cool single vineyard project that offered the chance to work with more than just Cabernet. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditer.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditer.com. We're recording this episode of The Honest Pour at Fermento's, 925 West Randolph in Chicago. Joining me today is Todd Alexander, head winemaker and general manager of Force Majeure Vineyards in Washington's Red Mountain AVA. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. How'd you get into winemaking? Uh, that's a good question. I know I've, I've, I've always liked wine. I kind of, I didn't, you know, my parents didn't really drink it that much, a little bit here and there, but it wasn't really part of our household. When I was in college, kind of enjoyed drinking wine, traveled to Europe, did some travel over there and really just uh, kind of opened my eyes to winemaking as an industry. I went to college in Arizona, so wine's not really... Yeah, not, you know, there's, there's some, no wine, something there's not really there, much, nothing there's really. There's a little bit of wine growing going on now, but yeah. there wasn't really much at the time. So it kind of piqued my interest going to Europe, and I started thinking about it as a, as a career. I met my wife, Carrie, and she had lived in Napa. Introduced me to some really good producers from Napa where I was kind of had my eyes open to what wine could be, how good it could be, and uh, just went on from there. Started started working, uh, went to got a, got a education, educational background in winemaking, but then also went and worked at a cellar. Actually started making wine in Texas, of all places. Two years I worked in a cellar there. Went through a little associate's program in winemaking at a college. I went to Napa Valley. Now here I am. So were you a Did science David's guy? Thing. Did you come through like... No, no. I, I studied something completely unrelated. I studied history. Pretty useless degree. <laughs> I was thinking at the time I'd go to grad school or something like that, you know, and I did history, art history, linguistics. Winemaking, science weren't really my thing, but as I got into winemaking, I got to really love science and the science side of it, but it's winemaking is a, a nice blend of art and science. It's one of the things I like about it. And so you met your wife and she took you to Napa? She didn't take me there, but she kind of told me about it and, you know, just educated me, I guess you could say, on on great producers that are there and kind of her experiences living there and really got me interested in pursuing winemaking seriously. And where did you start when you got to Napa? I was at Plum Jack. So I, Not a bad I, place to start, yeah, it huh? Good, it was a good place. <laughs> I, so yeah, I was in Texas. I worked a couple of years in a winery there, went to California, enrolled in the Davis winemaking certificate program, did, the, did that. But at the same time, I got into Plum Jack, I was cellar master there for a few years, and I worked at Plump Jack and Cade Wineries. Okay. And then I went to, to Bryant Family after that. So Bordeaux is kind of your love? Yeah, yeah I think that was the first, the first thing I was really into. Um, although, if I go back even earlier, Chateauneuf-du-Pape was 
some of the first wines that really got me excited. That combined with some of the, the Bordeaux wines that I've had, some great producers from Bordeaux and some like lesser known, smaller producers, just kind of got me really excited about wine and Napa too. And Napa's cab country, you know. And sure. I also, part of the reason for going to Napa was to work with some of the best in the industry because some of the best people are there. I mean, from all over the world. There's people in Napa from France, from California, uh, South America. There's a lot of people. When, when, did, when did you get to Napa? When was that? Uh, 2008. Okay. 2008, yeah. So you spent your first couple years at, at Plump Jack. Plump Jack. And, yeah. and what, did, what, did you, what did you learn about, about winemaking at Plump Jack? So okay. Plump Jack for me was uh, a larger winemaking operation than I was used to. Still small, relatively speaking, you know, about 16,000 cases, doing a few different wines. Um, so I just learned how to work fast, work hard. Got in the vineyard some, not as much as I really wanted to, but I, I did. I get got in the vineyard, so got some vineyard experience there, and really just had learned how to work on it as a team. And I learned a lot about cooperage, cooperages at Plump Jack. And Tony Biaggi was my boss there, and he's now at Hourglass. He was a great guy to learn from. Very open, very uh, into sharing information. So he was a really good mentor to have as my as my first kind of Napa boss. And then you went where? I went to Bryant Family after that. That's so a gig. Was, yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how, did you, how did you go from, you know, uh, fairly, I mean, yeah. uh, not large producing, but, you know, commercially known, commercially available wine yep. Yep. At, at Plump Jack to California Napa cult Cabernet, yeah. $400 a bottle, no one could get their hands on any of it. How did yeah. you make that move? Well, my goal was, my goal in going to Napa was to work, I wanted to make wine for the best. That was what I wanted to go and do. I wanted to learn from the best, work with the best. I wanted to do things that were really great. I didn't want to just make wine to make wine. I wanted to do something profound, something that had an impact, something that people talk about and gets people excited. Um, I, want to be, I wanted to be making those wines that you have you know, every so often that just kind of stop you in your tracks. That's what I wanted to do. So I had a, a friend who told me his friend was leaving Bryant family, the assistant winemaker position. I just kind of threw my hat into the ring, had to do a bunch of interviews and, you know, it was a process, but ultimately I was offered the position of assistant winemaker there um, with Helen Keplinger uh, at, the, at the helm just after Marco Bear had left. And then after a couple of years working with Helen, she left. And they could have brought someone else in, but they they wanted me to be the winemaker. And, and what was that like when you heard was, that? Well, You're going to be making Bright Family Vineyards. It was exciting. It was very exciting. I knew I could do it. There was a lot of uh, pressure, but you know the owner sat down with me and said, you know, I really want you to do this. I I, I can get anyone I want in here, but I want I want it to be you because I really like you and I, you've proven yourself how capable you are and how good you are at this. And I, my, had, my plan had been to work at Bryant for like four years or so and, and then go somewhere else, you know. So I wasn't really anticipating <laughs> being asked to be the winemaker. Sure. But I, you know, how do you turn that down? It's a great, it's a great honor to be asked to do that. Yeah. You know, but I also didn't want to do it for a long time. I still wanted to kind of get the experience and I wanted, really wanted to go and do is build something. Bryant was already established, you know. Bryant mm -hmm. had been around for a while. And when you're making a wine at a place like that, it's really more about steering the ship and being a steward, which is, it's cool, but it's not what I wanted to do. I'm a little... A steward in the way that, like, a vigneron is a steward and in France is the keeper of the vines rather than the winemaker, I think, or... I think, I think more that 
you're boxed into a particular style and the house style is what it is and you just have to kind of maintain that. That's your, that's your job. Mm-hmm. There's not room to really think outside the box and there's also not room to do any projects or anything else on the side. It's just total commitment. You said there was a lot of pressure. What kind of pressures come along with making a wine that's $400 a bottle? <laughs> oh, you know, just trying to get 100-point scores every year. <laughs> no, I mean, not really. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a score-driven kind of brand. It's like Screaming Eagle in that sense, you know? Like, the scores have to be there to command those kind of prices. So if they're not, it's, it's not good. And you were a winemaker there 12, 13, and 14? Uh, part of fourteen I, and and twelve, thirteen, yes. Not bad vintages. 14. Yeah, great. No, I got uh, did did really well with all those wines, and I I also was assistant winemaker on the ten and eleven. Eleven was a difficult vintage for everyone in Napa because it was so cold and rainy. But um, I, I was I was recently in Napa though uh, and did a, a vintage retrospective mm-hmm. tasting, and we tasted eleven, twelve, thirteen. And I was consistently surprised at how good the 11s were tasting right now. Yeah, I mean, the 11s are a cooler vintage, but more... Which is, that's more, more to my liking, I more guess. More Bordelais in style, yeah. you know, a little a little more lean. A um, little greener. Yeah, not quite the opulent, voluptuous wines that we know. You talked a little bit about scores and numbers. And <laughs> yeah. I think there's a place for these scores. Sure. Um, I think it should be a small little number after the description yeah. as opposed to the big giant number at the yeah. beginning of the description. How did that drive you as winemaker? How, 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 how weighty was that on you? Um, you know, not terribly, to be honest. I, I, I was conscious of it. I wanted the wines to score well, but I, wasn't, I wouldn't say that it influenced my winemaking I just did what I thought was best. I, I, it didn't influence my, my, my winemaking style. I would say I just tried to make the best wine every year. That's, that's all we did. We, we just farmed really well and tried to make the best decisions we could make to make the best wine we could make. And it's, you know, it's outside of your control what someone's going to score it. So you sure. just have to do what you believe in, make the wines you like and the owners like, and hope that the scores kind of align with that. But if they don't, it is what it is. When you're making these, this this cult Cabernet, did you ever have to consider, or did it ever run across your mind, or what did you think of the the fact that some people are buying my wine as a commodity, never to drink it? You know, it's going to go into their yeah. cellar, then in an auction in ten years, yeah. and in another ten years it'll go to another auction, and it might never get opened. But you're making wine ultimately as a winemaker for people to drink, right? That's right. That's well, what right. did you think about that that, that that whole thing? That's something that I didn't really like. I don't. I don't like making a wine that's just a commodity. I would say it ha- it's less of a problem with Bryant than it is with, say, Screaming Eagle. Those wines people buy and flip. Bryant family is more. The prices are a little more stable, so I, I wasn't worried about it too much. But I don't like the idea of also the wines only being available to people with a ton of money. You know, I'd like for other people to be. I, I mean, the wines I'm doing at Force Majeure are not cheap, but they're not five hundred dollars. You know. So it's not like they're inexpensive, but but they they are more accessible to more people in that sense. So from Brian Family Vineyards, what was your greatest takeaway from working there? My greatest takeaway, I think, was definitely uncompromising, meticulous winemaking, attention to detail, and just not I mean not compromising in, in any decisions that you make from vineyard to bottle, and the commitment to excellence really stuck with me and that was what I was looking for I was looking to go and work at a place like that and work with the, those kinds of people 
and kind of absorb from that, you know, and contribute to it, but then also take it and go to someplace new and start something if, and see if I can create something that I can elevate to that kind of a level, you know. I don't mean price-wise, but I mean quality-wise and, you know, reputation. So you were the winemaker there two and a half vintages or so. Why'd you leave? Yeah. Yeah, because I met, I was introduced to Paul McBride at Force Majeure. I had thought about going to the Pacific Northwest. I liked the wines from Washington a lot. But as a matter of timing and having the right project to take on, I didn't just want to leave. I could have stayed in Napa. I could have stayed at Bryant. I could have, I could have gone anywhere I wanted to. But Napa didn't really, I figured, well, if I'm going to go, I'm not going to go somewhere else in Napa. I want to go. You're at the top of the rocket. Yeah, I mean, I'm already at the top. You know, where do I go from there? So, I, I was introduced to Paul McBride from Force Majeure by a, a, a winemaker friend from Washington who I went to France with in 2013. And I kind of, I contacted him and I kind of said, hey, what's happening in Washington? I'm looking, thinking about maybe making a move up that way. You know, I'm really liking the wines up there. There's a few really good projects that I'm, I'm really into. I just don't know what the availability of um, any positions or anything like that is. And he said, well, your timing is really good because the owner of Force Majeure is looking for an estate winemaker, and that's a single vineyard project, and you'd be perfect for it. And they already, you know, have a good track record. I already knew of them, so I did. I, he put me in touch with Paul. Paul and I talked. I went up to Washington. I walked the vineyard, met with Paul a few times. Paul came to Napa. I had him to Bryant. We showed him around, and we kind of started, you know, feeling each other out. And, you know, ultimately he said, yeah, I would really like for you to come and take this o- over and see what you can do with it. I thought, I'm in, you know, because he's a great, great guy and the project's awesome. The vineyard's amazing. It's unlike anything else. It's also an opportunity for me to work with more than just Cabernet. And it's a <laughs> potential partnership there too. So that's, that's a valuable thing. So sure. there's a lot of elements that brought me up there. But mainly it's just, you know, Washington is like wide open. There's so much opportunity compared to California right now. Um, Force Majeure was called Grand Rav. Right. Uh, did the cha- name change happen after you came up, or was that before? It's before. So the yeah, the background story on that it used to be called Grand Rev up until 2007. So the first vintage was 04. In 07, there was a Cabernet they put out that scored 97 points on Wine Spectator. Still the highest scoring Cabernet from Washington ever. Uh, even higher than Le- under Grand Rev label, yeah, from from Washington, mm-hmm. but it was under Grand Rev. It got the attention of Domaine Carneros. They have a wine called La Rev, right? And they contacted their law- lawyer contacted Paul. Oh, said, so it was a intellectual property <laughs> change yeah, of and, name, and, and, but not a yeah. change in direction of the company exactly. or anything like that. So, so then then Paul, you know, his attorney said, "Well, you could probably fight this and win, but it's going to be expensive." And he, it, it was a young enough brand that he said, "Well." We'll just let's just it's not worth it you know let's change the name fair enough what do you love about washington wines um i love about washington wines gosh i love the i like the people up there i like the attitude it's not a lot of people are not quite as intense i bring in intensity with me but it's nice to be around people who aren't quite <laughs> you're that intense dude from napa <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have i do have a little bit of a reputation like that unfortunately but i'm working on it no but uh, i i think it's been interesting to learn from the farmers, the viticulturists up there, seeing how people are doing things, and the 
desire to do more and to do better. There's constantly people wanting to do more and do better up there, and it's great. So it's great. It's a great community of people. I like the people. And it's uh, Red Mountain AVA. Where's Red Mountain AVA? Yeah, so Red Mountain AVA is in the Yakima Valley. It's about 45 minutes east, or I'm sorry, west of uh, Walla Walla, a couple hours northeast of the Columbia Gorge. It's kind of in the southwest part of the state, about three hours from Seattle. And what would you say would be unique about what would be the terroir of yeah. the wines coming out of Red Mountain? So terroir and Red Mountain, it's all about basalt. So a lot of fractured basalt. A couple million years ago, there were there was lava flows coming out of fissures in eastern Washington. And then you had the Missoula floods, which were cataclysmic floods that happened about 15,000 years ago, sending 3,000 square miles of water through the Columbia Basin, churning up all the soils. And that flood happened like 50 times in a 2,000-year period. So over and over and over again, like underwater tornadoes, I mean, serious, serious cataclysmic floods. The Red Mountain was like right in the middle of that. So you had all these, you had lava flows, and you had wind blowing los, and then you had the Missoula floods bringing in erratics and all kinds of uh, different soils from Montana and depositing them. So in our vineyard, actually, there's eight different soil types, distinct soil types, that are all due to the Missoula flood. So what we've done in our vineyard is matched cultivar with soil type in an effort to um, pair up what we think will maximize the expression or give us the expression that we want from the vines. Everything is also own rooted, which is uncommon. And what's own rooted? No root stocks, no grafting. Oh, okay. So it's true. Own roots. Own All roots. California is on root stocks. Yeah, right. And France too, and Oregon as well. But Washington, the soils are sandy enough. The phylloxera doesn't doesn't like it. So we have own rooted vines. Which and is, is there an cool advantage thing. to that? Uh, yeah. So. You have a graft, the graft union on a vine that's been grafted is going to be very cold susceptible and disease prone, and it gets cold in Washington sure. in the winter. So safer, more safety for the vine, more insulation for the vine, less vascular potential for vascular damage, um, and then also the wines can be they're different. I wouldn't say wines that are grown on uh, rootstock are better or worse; they're just different. Different, they just sure. Have different expressions. Fair enough. Um, and the vineyards, I understand, is on a very steep hillside, yeah? Right, yeah. So that's one thing that sets us apart from everyone else on Red Mountain. Now, most of Red Mountain, is it's a 4,400-acre Appalachian. Most of it's flat. But there is a hill, a mountain. It's not really a mountain. It's not really red. It's kind of brown or green, depending on the time of year. Sure. <laughs> but it's it's like... Basalt. It's just lot old lava flows, you know, and concreted ash from uh, volcanic activity, windblown deposits, silt, sand, uh, and and down below a little deeper, but deeper dirt, deeper soils. But our our vineyard goes up this hillside steep, and it's we're planted in fractured basalt for the Syrah. Syrah is planted in fractured basalt. <clears throat> As you come down the hill. Uh, the soils get deep, and we have our Bordeaux varietals planted down there in the deeper soils. But we have, like I mentioned, eight different soil types between all of that. So it's not like anything else is being done. The Syrah is also Goblet-trained, high-density planting. Um, it's Each plant is on its own stake, and they're close together. It's like what you'd see in Hermitage, Cote Roti. 
Yeah, so yeah. so I was thinking when yeah, I'm thinking very steep hill. Yeah, steep. Uh, it sounded like coat roti is what yeah. came to mind. That first. was that was the inspiration when they were developing it was coat roti, Hermitage, something like that. You know, they're trying to do that. No one had done it in Washington before Paul and Ryan, Force Majeure, Grand Rev, whatever you want to call it. Uh, before they started developing the, that vineyard site. And they were up there pounding stakes into the ground. I mean, it was hard, hard work. And now you see people like Christoph Baron from Cayuse. He has a vineyard in the North Fork of Walla Walla that's planted similarly. Mm-hmm. It's on a hillside. It's fractured basalt. But the Force Majeure vineyard was done a long time before that. And like Cote Rotee, do you get a ton of sunlight? And- we get a lot of sunlight. We're, we're southwest-facing. So, yeah, good exposure. It's windy, and I think a lot of the best vineyard appellations uh, have wind, like the Mistral in southern France. Sure. You know, uh, It's constantly blowing, so it keeps disease pressure down a little bit. And yeah, it gets warm. We get plenty of sun. Uh, we have good diurnal shift. So once the sun goes down, it cools cool at off. night. Yeah. Let the sugars develop. Yeah, yeah, we get 50, 50 degree difference between daytime, nighttime temperatures. Sometimes. Oh, so, holy cow! So you can get get really retain good acidity, and that's one of the things I think you notice in Washington wines is the acidity is always really nice. And the alcohol levels stay in check. You know, nothing gets crazy out of balance. So, and you're making <laughs> Syrah and then Bordeaux type wines. Yes. Part of what I've been doing is since I've been on board is I'm kind of reshaping what we're doing. And right now we have a Syrah and a Cabernet from the estate vineyard, but starting next year we have, we'll have the Syrah and Cabernet still, but we'll also have a wine called Epinette, which is a right bank style blend. So Merlot, Cabernet Franc. And cool. it's named Epinette because there's actually a, a, a road called L'Avenue d'Epinette in uh, Libourne. It goes from Libourne to Pomeral, Saint-Emilion. And so it's kind of this a nod. This is Merlot it's neighborhood? Kind of, yeah, it's kind of a nod to that, but also the word means pine, like pine tree, which there's a lot of in Washington. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, and it, the, the word itself sounds nice. So that's why we named it Epinette. And then we have another wine also called Parvada, which is a Sanskrit word that means mountain or rock. And it's going to be a... Southern Rhone style blends. We have Grenache, Merved, Syrah, Senso, and Cunois in our vineyard. So we're going to be able to do a nice Southern Rhone style blend. I'm really excited about it. In 14, it's Merved heavy. I'm hoping to get, we planted more Grenache last year and this year, and I'm hoping to get it to where. Bring a little more of that Grenache, Grenache into it. Grenache based, because I love Grenache. Sure. Chateauneuf de Pop, like yeah, I said right. earlier, is one of my favorite uh, kind of first loves. For regions, and then we also do a small amount of Viognier, and I, I take a little bit of the Viognier for co-fermenting with the Syrah, mm-hmm. but I, we we have enough that we can make a little bit on the side. It's not very much, about 70, 80 cases, but we're going to plant a little bit more of, and that goes mostly to our mailing list. We don't we don't have enough for distribution. So sure, um, snatched up. What is your total production? Total production is 2,000 cases right now, and we're going to be growing that to 3,500, 4,000 cases in the next few years. Like as as soon as, so we have, between last year and this year, we're planting 10 acres. As soon as that's online, it's a couple years away yet, we'll be able to get our production up there. But that's as big as we want to make it. Great. Um, and you're currently making wines at a third-party facility, right? Well, we have our own facility, but it's, it's just a kind of a warehouse. It's just a warehouse space. But what we're looking at right now, and I was just out in Walla Walla last week, we're, we're going to be moving to Walla Walla. We're in Woodenville right now. 
we'll be moving to Walla Walla, and we found out we got a building. It's actually an old schoolhouse, and we're going to renovate that and turn it into a winery. It's going to be really cool. We're going to do an underground subterranean barrel sh- barrel shay, and uh, it's going to be awesome once it's done. But we're in the early, very early stages of that. But I'm hoping, and I think we can do it. We can have it done by next harvest, harvest 2017. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, it's moving right along then. Yeah. Huh? And how far is that from the vineyard? Uh, the place in Walla Walla. Yeah, yeah, that'll be so from Red Mountain, about 40 minutes, 45 mm-hmm. minutes, and then. We're also looking at a property in, in the Rocks District of Milton Freewater where the winery is going to be, and we may acquire another vineyard there, like a 9 or 10-acre vineyard, develop that, and that'll be right next to the winery or on the winery property. Great. Let's taste some wine. Let's do it. All right, so I'll start you with this. This is the 2013 Syrah. So this is grown in that steep upper part of the vineyard very rocky very rocky soils and pretty color little purple that kind of slightly blue edge yeah very very intense color um kind of a big 2013 you know i didn't i didn't make this wine mm-hmm. but i i cellared it and i did the blend and bottled it and it's kind of a it's a big syrah i mean it's built to oh, last it's a beast it's yeah it's it's big the 14, and on, I don't know what it is about 13, there's just more, it's just a bigger wine. But 14's a lot more uh, kind of soft and, and, and focused. This one's really broad and expansive. Um, but yeah, you get a lot of red fruit, blue fruit, a lot of spice. Uh, Jeb Dunnick from the Wine Advocate mm-hmm. said, liquid rock. And I, it totally makes sense, you know. It's like it, when I smell this wine, I think of the basalt, the volcanic soils that it's grown in. It just kind of comes through. You get a nice minerality in this. Great texture and acid, too. Like yeah. you see, you're saying about the acidity, it's definitely bright yeah. and spicy. Yeah. There's a lot of spice there. And this was just popped and poured. You know, if this is decanted for a while, mm-hmm. it really opens up. changes a lot. It's super young. This it's will, a baby still, yeah. It's super young. I mean, this will go the distance. Yeah, it's um, kind of lush texture and... It's it's, yeah. it's 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 not France. No, it's it's it's, it's definitely New World, um, which is good. I mean, that's what you want it to be, right? Yeah, I think you know we can't. We're not we're not Hermitage. We're not Curverti, even though we try to be. <laughs> even though we try to make the vineyard look like it, it's still <laughs> Washington. But that's great. It's its own thing, you know. Um, and it could be. We can make wines just as good as wines anywhere. I mean, this is a this is a really good wine. I think as the vines get a little bit of age on them, we're going to see. Uh, it's going to settle down a little bit. We're going to see more complexity, more subtlety coming forth. You told me before, and I don't remember. What, when was the vineyard planted? 04. 04. Uh, I'm sorry, 05, 06. 05. So it's yeah. still a baby vineyard, yeah. yeah. It's still a young vineyard, yeah. It's not, yeah. It doesn't have those big, gnarly, goofy... No, not yet. Yeah, they'll be there, though. It'll get there. It'll get there. But, yeah, we're we're working hard out there, and I think that's that's part of the fun thing about this project is that we can I, I can come in and have a... A say in creating what what is it? What is force majeure? What's it going to be? This is the some of the first fruit off the estate. You know this this bottling here is some of the first stuff that they kept. They were selling fruit for a while till the vines got a little older. You know, and so some of the first stuff. That brings up a question: What yeah. what is your vision for force majeure? What what is it going to be? It's going to be great wine. <laughs> well, it already it's is great wine. <laughs> it's going to be. I, I want it to be, if you think of Washington, I want it to be one of the wines that people 
first comes to mind. Um, I want it to be talked about as one of the great a great project in the United States, not just Washington. You know. Sure. Uh, how much of the straw is made? That's a 300 case production. We're bumping that up, of course, as more vineyard comes online. Mm -hmm. so, and pricing on it retail? $70. Oh, that's not, I mean, it's not like. No. You, not you had a neighbor up there that's charging a lot more for some Syrah. I know. <laughs> uh, and it's good Syrah, but this is uh, right there. So. This is right there. It's, it's a very different expression. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very different expression. This is. I, you know, you're talking about Cayuse. Cayuse is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's delicious. I mean, it is. That, that bionic frog blew my mind. I mean, no, that was amazing, but I'm that's, a big, two, again, $250 a bottle, a lot of money for a bottle of wine, yeah. if you can get it. I'm a big fan of what he's doing. I happen to... I really like Christoph's vision. I respect him. I think he's done a lot of great things for the state. I think he's done think great things for the region. Um, well, and this is and so this much is, energy in that one little body yeah. that he can't help but do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, but this is you know forty five minutes away from that vineyard, and it's very different, very very different. Completely. I recently did a, a, a an, an event with uh, Jeb Dunnick from the Wine Advocate. He had Rhone wines from around the world at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee for Hospice to Rhone. He had fourteen wines, and this is one of the wines he chose to pour. And we poured it next to the Bionic Frog from Cayuse, and it was really interesting to have those wines right next to each other. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we had also like Ogier and Chave and Rene Rostang. We were in there with some Northern Rhone heavy hitters. So it was really fun, really fun tasting. We, yeah. hung, we hung right in there with everybody. Yeah, this, this wine is definitely, it's um, voluptuous, but it's got acidity, so it balances it out. Well, this is delicious, so, so thanks for the taste on this. Yeah, and let's, the Cabernet. Uh, yeah, so 100% Cabernet. This is from... Obviously from our vineyard, but down further in the lower part of the vineyard where the soils are very deep, um, very slightly slo gently sloping hill, southwest facing, very deep warden soils, a lot of loam, silt, sand, beautiful vibrancy, a lot of freshness. This one's still a baby too, huh? Oh yeah. These are both 2013. So these are current release. and. The Cabernet is completely sold out. The Syrah, we're, I mean, we're all out of it except for what we have for distributors. And your wines are available on your wine list from the uh, from from the winery, right? Yes. Is the list open currently? Or? It's open, yeah. We we do mostly direct consumer, about 65% direct consumer. And the rest we hold back for distribution. Because we want to have placements. It's important to have a, a, a presence. You know, Part of the problem we have right now is we don't have enough wine. But we don't want to ramp it up. It's a good problem up. to have. It is a good problem, but we don't want to ramp it up and make too much, you know, and and uh, we're and we're not trying to get in every single we're not trying to be in everybody's face all the time. We're just no, right, right. doing what we do. It's all it's so integrated. Everything's like together in this wine. It's nothing standing out to me. Hundred percent cabernet. Mm hmm Wow. Great texture for hundred percent cabernet. Mm. Um, yeah, it almost feels like really fine tannins. Yeah, super fine, and and it's got that that uh, merlot kind of lush yeah. velvety thing going on, without being without any greenness to it, which sometimes right. cab could have. And it has a little bit of a, the tannins have a bit of a like a dusty quality to them. It reminds me of Rutherford. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I see that Rutherford yep. dust, the Rutherford dust, or even um, sometimes. Just in the two vintages I've vinified from start to finish, or they remind me of Howell Mountain, structure-wise. Like we, Red Mountain gets more structure in the wines than anywhere else in Washington. The wine, like the Cabernet in Walla Walla, can be really nice, but it's much softer. Mm -hmm. These wines have like bones. There's bones there. Yeah. 
this this one wants a big hunk of steak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but and it's so it's it's a it's a little bit of a bigger wine, but it's not. You know, it's, it's not, not a, a Napa beast. No, it's not a crazy out of control. It's it's interesting. This wine, I think, is one of those wines that you could drink this wine today on release, be very happy with it. But in five, eight, ten years, this is going to pay off and be yeah, exactly like a whole new dynamite. Kind yeah, you of want thing. to decant this for a couple of hours now if you can. Yeah. If you can, don't, don't open it now. Yeah, Put don't it open it now. <laughs> uh, wait, be patient. Unless Everyone, you must. everyone's in such a hurry to open their wine. Just open open one now. Drink it. Buy another one. Yeah, I like I like to buy generally, you know, three, four I, bottles. I usually and buy a few. Drink one right now, yep. and then I'm going to hold on to one for a while, that's and then a couple of years, and if I decide I'm going to really hold it. Go. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I like to do it. I mean, I'll always at least three of, mm-hmm. of everything yeah. I buy. I try to. And unless what's it's something really expensive. What's the retail on this? This is 95. Uh, wow. It's a good it's So a what's good it deal. like? You made this $400 wine that no one could drink or only the rich could drink <laughs> yeah. or the expense account boys could drink uh, to making this Wow, not inexpensive. Yeah. Still very approachable wine that yeah. at 95 bucks no one's no serious cabernet buyer is going to walk into a shop and bat their eye at. Right. How, how does that feel to go from one extreme to what you're, where you're at? <laughs> it feels it feels good. Um, I think this wine, we could, well, we could definitely sell it for more. I mean, the, it flies out, it's gone, you know. Um, and it, after we release it, like the first or second week, it's sold out. So, I, had, I don't know. I think the wine is is great and I, I like that more people can have access to it. It feels good to me. I think we are gonna probably go the price will go up, but it's not gonna go up to four hundred dollars. <laughs> well yeah, no very few I mean, wines could, can really but... carry that. <laughs> so where do you see this all going? Where, where, where do you see I mean you're gonna be increasing production, you're gonna be bringing yep. more vineyards online. Yeah. Where do I, you see Force Majeure in let's say five years. Five years? Well five years won't be drastically different than where we are now 10 years maybe mm-hmm. um, just because it takes a while with the new vineyard the new uh, vines we're planting to come into production it'll take three years before we get any fruit off of that then two years of aging before we even sure okay so 10 years 10 years yeah I think we're going to continue just focusing on making great wine and try and get acquire a good spot in the rocks another another vineyard that we can do a single vineyard offering of all single vineyard focused and just farm this thing as well as we can and just continue to make the wines as good as we can make them and i i think you know hopefully uh we are just doing what we're doing keep continuing to go we're not trying to blow this thing up and make it some kind of crazy cult brand or anything like that we just i'd like for it to be available in a few places, we'll never be able to distribute everywhere, but we'll. No, but you don't want to be that, right? No, you I don't want to be the a, grocery store one. No, we don't want to be a grocery store brand. I want to. I want the. I want people that drink our wines, and, and this is pretty much the case to be people who are really into wine. They really care about what they're drinking, and are really interested in it, not just casual drinkers. These wines aren't for really super casual wine. No, drinkers. this isn't the the the, the rosé you're going to pop on a hot summer night on the porch. No, this is this requires a little bit of thought, you know. Um, and, and paying attention to what what you're what you're drinking, thinking about it. I, I like to make wines like that. I like I like to make wines that are fun and enjoyable, but also hopefully evoke something in, in you. Well, they're stirring. cerebral. They're yeah, cerebral. cerebral. These wines, you, th- you think about them. Uh, yeah. They're really delicious. Um, 
looking forward to coming out to Washington and visiting yeah, you please do. at the winery. Um, Todd Alexander, Force Majeure winemaker, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod.